I'm delighted to have all three of our speakers today. Um, the, some of the hymns reflect either traditions from which they come or hymns that they actually requested. And that will be true of our closing hymn as well. Uh, but for now, I'd like to ask Judy Cantill to come share with us part of her journey. Good morning, everybody. I'm afraid I am responsible for the Hebrew lesson this morning, and uh, not to perpetuate stereotypes, but it may be the first time I've ever heard that sung in tune. (laughs) So um, after listening to the eloquence of the two presidential speeches at the Democratic Convention, um, I only hope that I don't put you to death um, listening to this. But please bear with me when I uh, expound upon my journey to the church by going back into my family history, because my family history does inform who I am today. My father's family was Jewish from Russia. Um, in, the, uh, late, in the early 1880s, um, there became a large-scale wave of anti-Jewish programs that swept through Russia. And... Um, These were violent riots against Jews, destroying their homes, their businesses, killing families, burning down houses, and it was actually condoned by law. Um, So there was, um, I know we tend to think of um, the period in Europe with the Nazis, but prior to that, in Russia, there were terrible things happening to the Jewish people. Um, There was also a systemic uh, policy of discrimination when it came to education. And within six years of that 1880s, by the late 1880s, there were edicts of expulsion um, in which Tsar Alexander III noted, we must never forget that the Jews have crucified our master and have shed his precious blood. By 1892, new measures banned Jewish participation in elections. And I think this sounds very familiar with what's happening today, Um, the uh, wholesale attempt to keep certain people out of the elections. I think it sounds very familiar. Um, So when my father's family escaped to America, they came from much fear and pain. And like many Jews from Russia, They wanted to assimilate as quickly as possible into their their new home. And part of that assimilation was to drop their religious practices. Um, Besides dropping their religious practices, my father contracted polio as a child. They were in New York City, and he spent his childhood in hospitals and in bed. He took advantage of the educational freedom that was offered in his new country. He studied and uh, obtained a PhD in nuclear chemistry from New York University. He became a scientist. So let me explain a little further about the dropping of religious practices. His family did not drop a cultural identity, and so I was raised with the Jewish identity. Um, This feeds into how I became a UU. Um, Recently, I found myself at a home Bible study group, which is sort of a long story how I got there. But um, (laughs) 
As I spoke, I was asked a common question that I hear a lot from people. So Jews don't believe in Jesus? I went on to explain that that language, the word constructions that we formulate our thoughts within our head, are culturally determined. Just ask an Inuit Eskimo what the word snow means. Um, It may have a quite different meaning than it does for you. So I tried to explain that my way of looking at Judaism was not defined by Jesus yes or Jesus no. Um, But I think of myself as a people uh, um, going back through all of history. So I was raised by a cultural, not a religious Jew, who was a scientist. My mother was also Jewish, escaped to America from Romania. She too became a scientist. I've taken you back to the the 1880s in Russia. Now I'm going to fast forward to 1972 when I was a senior in high school. I was um, with my mother washing dishes in the kitchen after dinner and all of a sudden it struck me I had no idea whether my parents believed in God or not. Just none. It had never come up. Um, So I asked my mother. She paused a minute. She looked at me and she said, yes. And that was the end of the conversation. (laughs) To this day, I'm not sure if she really meant yes or just thought she ought to say that. Given this background, my own propensity toward science, upon moving to Shreveport, um, I visit the church because it's an obvious enclave of critical thinkers who are primarily politically aligned with myself. Um, Through an affinity group um, of the church, recently I watched a film. Um, It was a one-woman soliloquy by Julia Sweeney called Letting Go of God. It's quite a humorous journey from her early roots of Catholicism to not. When I was thinking about um, this talk, I thought of the title of her movie, Letting Go of God. Um, It had a byline called Breaking Up is Hard to Do. I think my journey into the church came from an absolutely 180-degree different direction. If I had to call my byline, it would be joining up is hard to do. It just wasn't the way I was raised. So simply, I do value universal love. I do value freedom of thought and expression. I do value critical thinking. I do value the church's history of fighting for human rights. And I do value your friendship. That's what got me here. And that's what keeps me coming back. Thank you. And now we'll hear from Patrick Early. Good morning. When Barbara asked me to talk about this, I just kind of thought, well, what am I going to say? And I thought about, what brought me here? It's been a long long road, really. Funnily enough, I was raised in a household of faith. My father was a devout atheist. He proselytized atheism. And my mother was a silent, lapsed Swedish Jew. She never spoke of God. I know that sounds like a strange basis for any real set of recognizable beliefs, and perhaps it is. 
Yet I am serious. My dad was much more likely to attempt to convert someone to atheism than was most any Christian I ever met to attempt to convert them to Christianity. As a grade school kid, when asked, where do you go to church, my usual, usual reply was a blunt, I don't. High school saw that began to change. I looked around me. I saw lots of my peers involved in youth groups, or for the Mormon lads I knew, seminary. And I wondered what they found worth investing that much time and effort in. So, for a while, I attended LDS seminary classes before school with a good friend whose family were devout Mormons. I also attended a small Mennonite church near my home with another friend whose family were deeply involved in that faith. None of that really satisfied much, as all the doctrines of every church I attended required faith. Faith, as in Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith? I had none. So I started reading everything I could from many different sources on religious beliefs and doctrines from many, many different sources. What I found were structures of social control and authority masquerading as beliefs in divinity or divinities. Never any evidence to support such beliefs, just bald-faced assertions that you must believe. The least aggressive of those structures was Buddhism, but it still required faith. By my early 20s, I pretty much quit looking. Oh, I attended some churches. As a social convenience, mostly, it's a whole lot easier to say, I'm a Baptist, than to listen to the confused reactions when you tell a social Christian, which is what most of this country is, that you are a non-believer. Unlike my dad, I'd come to the conclusion that I did not know if there was a God, and was mostly pretty comfortable with that. I didn't assert there was no God. If asked seriously, I'd just say, I don't know. That's pretty much how things stayed for about 30 years. I still read. I still looked for evidence to answer my questions. But none of what I read offered anything tangible. All of it, at its foundations, required faith which I had never had. What I believed in, really, was my family. They are all grown and gone. My wife I lost in January of 2001. The last five to six years, I went looking, once again, for something, just what I did not know. I began finding articles and expositions of positions that suggested to me that there could be some sort of fellowship based not upon faith, but upon that search. What that fellowship might be, or where it might be, I had no real idea, 
no clue of. Then I found All Souls through the good offices of Bill Johnston, and I finally agreed to attend, mostly so he'd quit bugging me to do so. (laughs) It didn't take long at all to realize I'd found that community of seekers. I'd found a home. Our third speaker this morning is Pamela Raintree. Good morning. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you, congregation. Easter Sunday, 1958, I slipped out of church to play in a nearby park. At age five, I couldn't imagine my parents figuring out that I wasn't really in the bathroom all morning, let alone that an invisible father would remember a little white lie. Someday. (laughs) Or what eternity meant. If not for the basket and the chocolate stains on my shirt, I would have had trouble conceiving of an Easter bunny. Two years later, the idea of hellfire and brimstone terrified me. Almost every Sunday, I would go to the altar, repent my sins, but I still felt guilty because of that line in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, where it says, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. At age seven, that meant, God hates you, and I wanted God to love me. The problem was that I thought I was a girl, contrary to everyone else. I dressed like a girl when I could, but my parents made me wear boys' clothes. And one way or the other, God wasn't very happy with my garments. And puberty was a horrible disappointment, but I thought of myself as a woman and wore women's clothes, and I was convinced of being doomed to hell. So I just didn't go back to church for nearly 20 years. When my marriage ended, I I decided to start life over as a woman, since I was going to hell anyway, and I was tired of fighting myself. My mother banned me from her house, saying that she loved me, but God didn't. I wanted to die 
but wasn't quite ready for God's weenie roast. And so it was time for a confrontation. Just when I thought I had a deal work without, worked out with God, I had a Zen moment. I became one with everything. And everything was divine. But it was nothing. A black void. I went to a lot of churches looking to reconcile that experience with Christian theology. What I found was that few Christians wanted to discuss mysticism and most still regarded transgender people as abominations. All souls was different. I first visited here in 1996 to hear a Gnostic poet. The openness to diverse ideas was impressive. I was even more impressed when y'all invited me back to read my poetry, to sing in the choir, and to share my story. I accepted the invitations. And I visited it other times, but I was afraid of another rejection. Several of you encouraged me to come back anyway. Y'all made me feel safe. So I joined All Souls not long before we became a welcoming congregation. I was struggling with personal problems at the time and needed a friend. That vote told me that I had a whole sanctuary full of friends. That's why I'm still here. But we all have times when we're not strong, when we have pain and sorrow. And at All Souls, you've got a friend to lean on to. Thank you.